This is the fall line. If you haven't listened to the preceding episode, please do so before you begin this one. Many key points are established. We'll remind you of where we are in the timeline, but you'll need context to truly understand the events discussed here. Pseudonyms have been assigned to the parents of the missing children and to the children's uncle. No other pseudonyms are used. Some of the field interviews have a mild, fuzzy undertone due to the situational noise at the time of recording. We've reduced it where possible and feel the stories were vital to include rather than to retell. On the first episode of the season, Sheila, Monica and Michael's eldest sister, revealed the alleged molestation of Monica by their stepfather, John, the subsequent denials and lack of action, and Michael's eventual discovery that his sister was telling the truth, something that drove them both from their parents' home. It's alleged that Michael's discovery sparked the parents to finally separate. Jane, their mother, could no longer ignore the abuse. In the late spring of 1989, John moved to the Heritage Apartments complex. Within a month, Michael and Monica were gone. To go forward to the moment of their disappearance, we have to head backward too, and that can get a little confusing for everyone. We need to remember that nearly everyone interviewed has only a scrap of the story, limited or informed by what they knew at the time Michael and Monica went missing. In some cases, we have more details of the day's events than individual family members. When the family gathered to be interviewed for this podcast, They surprised each other with the information, with corrections and revisions to what had been fact. Sometimes they all spoke at once, a rush of words that layered details like clues. A relief, probably. In this story, there has been so much silence. Let's revisit the day that Monica and Michael went missing, June 21st, 1989. According to the family, Monica and Michael had both moved out. We don't know a lot about Monica's biological father, except that, if circumstances had been different, she wouldn't have chosen to live with him. For Michael, it was different. John's first family, his ex-wife, and the two children he'd had with her before he married Jane, had always welcomed Michael's presence in their home. He was treated like another son and was so close to his half-brother that it seemed natural that he would turn to them in a moment of crisis. But remember, though Michael's half-siblings and their mother loved him, They had no right to keep him. If John or Jane were to come calling, they'd have to hand Michael over, whether he wanted to go or not. And in the early afternoon of June 21st, 1989, that's what happened. According to family accounts, John, though he'd just gotten an apartment of his own in Brunswick, had suddenly decided to move back to his home state of Alabama. His children, the ones he had with Jane, report that his Brunswick apartment was largely packed up, with just the bedding and a few essentials left unboxed. They spent weekends with him and had seen it themselves. And yet John showed up at his ex-wife's house telling Michael to get in the car. He wanted help packing. To our knowledge, they hadn't seen each other since Michael walked in on his father allegedly molesting Monica, and Michael wasn't happy about the reunion. He was crying, John's first wife remembered. He didn't want to go with his dad. She didn't stop John. She couldn't. And Michael left. Keep in mind, the precise nature of the split between Michael's father and his mother wasn't well known, even in their own household. Almost no one knew the full extent of the family's trouble. Michael had always been quiet, and the trauma of that summer had only intensified his silence. They simply didn't know. Miss Evelyn, Monica and Michael's grandmother, tells us that Jane's reticence to communicate was business as usual. She felt her daughter wanted to hide some of the uglier parts of her marriage. 
In the following interview, you'll hear a redacted name. Miss Evelyn is referring to her son-in-law, who we call John. It was something that didn't click, you know. My spirit just really didn't agree to him. And he definitely wasn't coming around, but I have met him, you know. Do you remember anything he may have said or done that made you feel that way? Well, uh, he would bite my daughter, you know. He'd jump on and beat her up and stuff like that, and she never would do anything about it. And, of course, I felt like I didn't want to interfere with that because I didn't know what he might would do to me, you know. So I didn't say anything. But um, I remember when they were living on Brailsford, she called me. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and she says, Oh, I'm all bloody, and she was screaming and crying. And I couldn't think of nothing but just jump up, went in my night clothes and went on over there. And so I walked in, and I thought she was really bleeding, but she had knocked, he had knocked her in her nose and made her nose bleed. And so I stepped to the room, though, and I said, he wouldn't say nothing. I said, I just want to find out what's wrong with you all, you know. He would not say a word. And then later on, she told me, said, he told her if I had came to that bed and pulled the cover back, he was ready for me. He had a pistol. He was going to shoot me. Now, she said that, but I didn't. he didn't say it to me. So that's just hearsay. But I believed her when she said that. Mm-hmm. And so Michael left with John, ostensibly to help him pack. This is when events become less certain. We know that they picked up Monica from her father's house, but we're less sure why she would have gone with them. To Sheila's knowledge, Monica was home alone that day. How was she convinced to go on this odd errand? Sheila's best guess was that Michael's presence was the deciding factor, if Monica even had a choice, that is. She would have gone to see her brother, or maybe even to protect him. This was sometime in the afternoon, maybe three or four, and maybe a little earlier. John worked construction and was employed in a job that involved laying slabs of concrete in a lot across the street from the hospital. Did he call in from work that day? Was he off? Why was he available? Sheila tells us that after Monica and Michael went missing, John never returned to that job. In any case, he was somehow available that afternoon, and Jane was not. As far as we know, she was at work. Monica and Michael weren't living with her, so she didn't keep tabs on where they went or who they were with, but many hours later, she was the one to receive the call. According to the police report, she was on the clock when she received notice that her children were missing, but that may or may not be correct. When was her shift over? Was the call made at 8.30 as reported or later? After Monica was picked up, the thread of the story comes loose. We don't know what the children and John did in those missing hours, but they did end up at his apartment, or at least in the complex. We know this because they came to visit their aunt, Wanda. Wanda lived there too, across a large courtyard from the new apartment John was already planning to leave. A few things to keep in mind when you listen to Wanda's story. Like most everyone else, she didn't know why her sister and John had broken up. She just knew they had. She also knew that at least some of the children were coming to visit him at fairly regular intervals, so it didn't strike her as odd that Monica and Michael might be there. 
In this interview, we do our best to avoid the use of names, but you'll occasionally hear a redaction when a name is being used. In that case, the redactions are either the names of John or Jane, and the context will make it obvious who the speaker means. That day, Wanda was surprised to see her niece and nephew. As we mentioned, she didn't see them often. I don't know what they were wearing or any plans that they may have had for that day. All I know is that we were still living in the same apartment complex, and it was in the evening time, and they came over to my house. I don't recall expecting them to come over. Were you surprised to see them? Yeah, actually, I was. They were welcome to come over anytime they wanted to, but it was kind of like a surprise. And so um, I had already cooked dinner for my family. We had already eaten. My oldest daughter was little at the time, and Michael and Monica came over. And they didn't pretty—I don't recall them saying why they came over. They just came over. So I'm thinking, okay, they just came to visit. And so um, me and my husband was there and my daughter— And um, I don't know what we talked about, but we just kind of sat around and talked for a little bit. And then I offered them something to eat. And so they kind of like, I remember they looked at each other. I don't know if that was like, I guess, getting okay with each other, if it was okay to stay longer or whatever. But um, they end up eating. So um, after they ate, then they kind of like sat there for a few more minutes. And then it was like, well, we're going to get ready to go. But I can't remember anything about what we talked about. And I guess I kind of felt like maybe they wanted to say something or whatever. I don't know. So when they got ready to leave, I said, well, let me walk you out. So I walked them out and it was still daylight. But you can tell it's in the evening where it's starting to get dark. But it wasn't dark yet. And next to the apartment complex where we stay is a laundromat. And right in front of the laundromat is a phone booth. And so I walked them down to the end, right there at the laundromat. And as we were walking up towards the laundromat, was just coming up from across the field because they stayed behind us. Walking? Walking up? Yeah, he walked up as we walked up. And so um, we stood there for a moment, and I don't know what we said to him, but I know... um, I was just walking them. They were big enough to walk themselves home, but that was kind of opportunity for them to say something if they wanted to say something. And um, I told them bye, and that's all I remember. They left. They walked across the field. With him? No. They walked ahead of him because he stood there for a few minutes because he and were separated at the time. I don't know how long they were separated or why what was going on, but she was staying with one of her friends and he's always the type kind of like, well, he'll push you up to do stuff. So it was kind of like, push me up to talk to her to tell her to come home. So he got her on the phone and I got on the phone. I don't remember what all I said. I know I had to be on there like maybe less than a minute. I wasn't on there long. And pretty much just to say, said, come home. He wants you to come home. And that was it. And so when I was walking away, I left him on the phone. So I don't know what happened after that point. So the children were out of sight at that point? Yeah, because, like I said, he was at the phone booth, and they went on across the field. So to say that they actually went straight home, I don't know. My assumption is that's where they said they were going home. 
If this interaction sounds strange, uncomfortable even, it was. But there's some important context that you'll need to understand why it might have seemed so to Wanda and why she missed the subtle tension in Monica and Michael. She was feeling a sick worry of her own. You see, she herself had been the victim of an attempted molestation allegedly perpetrated by John. She was only 13 at the time it occurred, nine years younger than Jane, who had walked in when the attempt was occurring. Nothing was ever done to address the issue. At the time, Wanda was too afraid to tell her mother. Jane, though she had seen everything herself, somehow continued her relationship with John. And the sister's relationship grew understandably distant. Why would Wanda want to spend any more time with her attacker than she had to? I don't know how old I was. Maybe Mama could help me with that. But I'll say I was in maybe middle school. You think, Mama? I really can't remember whether you were probably about 12, 13. I don't know. Probably in, probably in middle school. But, um, 14 or 15? Could be. How old are we when we're in the ninth grade? Because that's when I met my husband. 13, 14, 15. In the ninth grade? So it was before that. It was before I met my husband. I don't even know where the house was, what y'all was staying in. It was a house where when you walk in the house, it's a living room. And right across from the living room is the kitchen. Then there's this long hallway. And you could close the door off. Point gates. All right. So they were living in twin gates. They're all young. They done gone to bed. And I was always close with I always looked at him as like, oh, this is my brother-in-law. And he would always treat me like, oh, this is my sister-in-law. And um, if he would go to the store or even go and holler at one of his friends or something, and, and I'm there around him, or even if it's right here in Brunswick, I'd jump in the car just because I'm proud. This is my brother-in-law. And ride with him, didn't realize until I'm older that I was actually a showpiece. He did that, and I didn't know what was going on. And so um, this particular time, when I went to their house over the summer, because I looked at him as a brother, I never saw a need to, like, bundle clothes up, hide, because I didn't think he looked at me in that way, because I was just clueless. And so this particular night, they all go on to bed, and um, I always, like, I'm a person, I stay up late at night. And um, I said, I could stay up longer than y'all, so I'm talking to And so we were in the living room playing cards and watching TV. And to me, has always been a type of go to bed early. And so um, he was like, she was like, well, I'm sleepy. I'm going to bed. So I guess that was kind of like supposed to be the cue. Let's go to bed. So he was just like, well, he wasn't ready to go to bed yet. And I definitely wasn't because I'm the one that's going to stay up the latest. That was the challenge. So um, she went on to bed. They had a long sofa. Me being young at that time, I recall a little like the sofa was longer than this sofa here. A little bit longer. So he's on the end of the sofa. I'm on this end of the sofa. And the TV is kind of like in this, this direction. And so I'm sitting there watching TV. I had already taken a bath. I had on a gown and a robe, thin gown, thin robe, not like a necessarily see-through type. Still, once again, I'm not thinking nothing because that's my brother. Okay, so I'm sitting there watching TV. Don't even know when I fell asleep. And what woke me up was a pop sound. It scared me. 
So I'm sitting there and something say pop. And I did like this. When I did like that, because of the pop sound, I immediately turned this direction. This man, when I fell asleep, when I was awoke, he was on that end of the sofa. When I heard the pop sound, he's sitting right next to me like my daughter. How did he get that close to me? At what point and what happened while I was sleeping, don't even know what happened or what could have happened had I not heard the pop sound. The pop sound was my sister when she opened the hallway door. When she opened the door and it made the pop sound and she stepped in there, our eyes met. I looked at her, she looked at me, and she looked at him, and she was like, it's late, you coming to bed? He couldn't say nothing because he was just frozen because he was caught. Mm. And he just sat there. He didn't say nothing. He just got up and went on in the room. She went in the room. The next day, nobody ever said anything about it. And that bothered me because I kept seeing how she looked at me. And I never want my sister to think that I tried to come on to her husband. I do anything to turn him on. And then to think, was she blaming me? Was she blaming him? If you know he's like that, why you let me even be around him or left in a room with him? It just bothered me and bothered me. And I know my mom don't play. So my thing was when I came back home, it kept bothering me and eating at me. I couldn't keep that from my mama. So I made a mistake of telling her when she was straightening my hair and she burned me because she was so upset about it. And so, but yeah, that, that really made her mad because she wanted to go to him, but I had made her promise not to say anything. And so as far as I know, we've never discussed it, just she and I. And when I met my husband, because they're supposedly kin somewhere, long distance, somewhere down the line. I wanted him to know just who is. And so I told him. And so he's always known this all these years. He's never discussed it, but he's always had his guard up and not to look at me sideways or say anything because he would say something to him, confront him about that. I wanted her to come to me and say, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry I left you alone. Say something or even if she didn't say, I'm sorry, are you okay? Never said anything. I felt uncomfortable in the house after that because she wasn't even talking to me. Like giving you the silent treatment? Yeah, like I did something and I just felt so bad. I didn't want to be there. After Monica and Michael left Wanda's sight, they weren't heard from again. Wanda remembers it being evening, but before the sun had fully set, which, according to historical record, would have been before 8.51 p.m. This would mean that the call John asked Wanda to make from the payphone would have happened around that time. Odd, considering that the police report states that the call John made to tell his estranged wife that the children were missing would have occurred on or about 8.30 p.m. But we know that Wanda was with Monica and Michael about this time. So what do we make of this information? Wanda doesn't know what the couple discussed when she handed the phone over to John as she walked home. We can reasonably assume she was relieved to get away from the man who she says attempted to molest her. So we don't know what they said. It would be strange, though, if he told his wife then that Monica and Michael were missing. Because, as Wanda can verify, they were very much present, walking up the hill a little ways ahead of the grown-ups. 
When asked what happened that night, John would say that Monica and Michael ran out of the apartment and away from him, where he didn't know. He mentioned a boyfriend of Monica's, and her mother shared the same sentiment with others. But other times, he declared that he'd dropped the kids off at the apartment to pack, and by the time he made it back from running some errands, they were gone. That doesn't seem to jibe with the timeline, shaky as it is, as the police report's phrasing implies he discovered them missing in the afternoon, and we know that Wanda saw them at dinner time. She fed them, in fact. So where did they go? John didn't call Jane until later in the evening. The police report, as we said, says 8.30, though we had reason to question that time, to tell her that he couldn't find them. Maybe it was a normal impulse to call, something anyone would do if a child disappeared. Or maybe it was an extension of that call he'd had Wanda make earlier, a way to reconnect with his estranged wife, this time through a family emergency. Their eldest sister, Sheila, didn't find out about Monica and Michael's disappearance for a few days, so we rely on the memories of her younger siblings for information as to what occurred that following day. Phoenician, who was 12 at the time, recalls that her father, John, came over to Jane's apartment and took the family driving around slowly in his car. They didn't call out for the teens or ask anyone on the street if they had actually seen Monica and Michael. They just circled the streets surrounding the Heritage apartment complex, quietly looking out of the car's windows. Then they went to John's apartment. The story was already set in stone at that point. Monica and Michael had run away. Here, Phoenician describes what she saw when her father took the family inside. Two bags sitting by the front door. Bags like? Two black trash bags sitting by the, the front door. And I was walking around the apartment and listening at my dad at the same time, telling my mom what may have happened. And he was telling her something about he maybe have scared them. That's why they left the bags, and they ran out the back door. That's pretty much what I can remember what he was telling her. And at the time, did you see the beds in the bedrooms? hmm And you said that you noticed one of them was different. Yes. The bedroom across from the master bedroom that was downstairs. We had two bedrooms downstairs with two bedrooms upstairs. And the... um. My youngest sister bedroom is the one that had missing sheets and uh, comforter off the bed. You were also describing that because Michael and Monica had moved out at that point and they were staying at other houses, they didn't have possessions at that time in the apartment. No. So they didn't have their clothes there. No. So the statement was, these are Michael and Monica's clothes, but the question would be, where did they come from? Exactly. As we said, Sheila didn't find out for days. When she finally was told, she thought it was possible that Monica might have run away. After all, she knew what her sister had been facing. But why disappear when there was family who would and had taken them in? Monica had already gone to her father's house. Michael was in a tougher spot, as he had no legal right to stay with his half-brother's family. Still, though, would they disappear over that? Sheila doesn't think so. When the police report was filed, John reported them as runaways and Jane concurred. For years, the report didn't go further than that. And within a few weeks, the family was gone. We hear so many stories of parents waiting for years, never changing their numbers, leaving porch lights on, but not in this case. The children report that within a few days of their initial neighborhood search, their father's car was gone and they didn't know what happened to it. 
They just knew that when they went to Alabama, they took a bus. The children didn't even know that they were moving until the day that they packed up and left with their mother and father back together again and their sister and brother still missing. It's hard to imagine that parents would break leases, leave jobs, and head out of state so soon after their children disappeared. Would it be easy for a mother to do that? Miss Evelyn thinks that Jane wouldn't have had much choice, at least when it came to her son-in-law and the kind of control John wielded over his family. Do you have any theory of what may have happened to them? Yeah, I had my theory about it, that he was involved, that he had something to do with it, because he was too calm, too. You know, like, well, they're gone, let them stay gone. That's the feeling that I got from him. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a theory of what his motivation may have been? I felt like if they're that he had done something to them, that that would have brought him and her back together. That's, that's my feeling. So it seemed to me like she'd been doing whatever ever since then, you know. Whatever he tells her to do, that's what she does. And if he said don't do it, she better not do it, you know. Next time on The Fall Line, we dig deeper into what came after Monica and Michael's disappearance including the strange, secretive tension that had formed between John and his brother, a man we're going to call Uncle Jake. Think this story is complex? We're just getting started. And with the help of family stories and historical record, we hope that we can highlight plausible theories and dispel some of the rumors surrounding the teen's disappearance, including the persistent gossip about possible drug-related violence. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, There's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. All our Patreon earnings fund the Millbrook Twins billboard and go to the therapy fund for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We've also added occasional live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we're beginning that feed as well, so you can have an alternative way to contribute. Again, 100% of these funds go to support the Billboard and Therapy Fund. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. Currently, our monthly donation is going to Private Investigations for the Missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of PIs. (laughs) 